Hello, and welcome to the Orthodontic Products Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Warner. Joining me today is Dr. Greg White. Dr. White may be familiar to some of our readers as he was featured in our February 2023 cover story. Dr. White has been in practice for more than 25 years and is one of the founding partners of White, Greer, and Maggard Orthodontics, a pediatric and orthodontic group practice located in Lexington, Kentucky. More recently, he is the founder and president and CEO of Pepperpoint Partnerships, an alternative to the DSO model for practices that are looking to self-consolidate. Dr. White, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Great to be here, Allison. Thank you. Great. Well, so the reason you're here is you recently wrote a white paper called The State of the Dental Industry, and it looks at the rapid consolidation in the field led by private equity and kind of offers predictions for the future. And that's what we're going to focus on for this conversation. So I want to start with what was your motivation for the paper? Well, the primary motivation came... uh... Um, as a result of me being invited to and speaking on a panel at uh, the DSO Summit in um, Austin, Texas, back in October of last year. And uh, during that panel discussion, it was called Point to Counterpoint. Um, really, the whole idea was um, uh, private equity against um, other alternatives that were out there. And so it, it really became obvious to me um, during the course of that um, panel and then the conversations that I had afterwards that there were a lot of people in the dental industry that really do not understand all of the nuances associated with um, private equity backed DSOs and what that model looks like and what the um, uh, the end result of that can be uh, and mean for all of the primary stakeholders in dentistry, uh, primarily the dentists themselves, the communities that they serve, and the patients that they treat. Okay. So your thesis is that the dental industry is undergoing a lot of change. If anything, it's a constant in the industry. And one of those changes is that rapid consolidation of practices. But before we get to what is happening today, can you talk about how consolidation isn't necessarily a recent phenomenon? This actually goes back to the 90s, correct? Yeah, it does. Um, And I can remember back in uh, the mid to early 90s, actually exploring it. It, um, There were a few different uh, companies that had popped up. I can think of, I can think of uh, OCA, uh, Apple Orthodontics, Castle, there were several of them. And I even went out and visited um, uh, one of the corporate offices just to try and get an idea of what it was, simply because anything that comes in new to uh, uh, my profession, I'm I'm curious about it uh, because, um, you know, so many things, uh, can uh, be positive, and you can have disruptions, positive or negative nature. And so um, you had a lot of different issues that uh, occurred with uh, some of those and many others that tried to start in the 90s. But the primary um, uh, thing I would say is that uh, those disruptions were minimum and minimal and really didn't take off because, number one, there wasn't a ton of private equity in it. There wasn't a lot of momentum behind it. There weren't that many of them, and they never really got um, the critical conversations going in a big way. The second thing was, is uh, the dental profession in the early 90s really had not experienced many disruptions. It had been pretty much the same for years. Um, I remember the biggest disruption that we saw was when Invisalign uh, came out by Align Technology. That was the biggest change we'd seen in orthodontics, um, I mean, maybe since the uh, since um, uh, bonding materials to go from bands to brackets. And so people just did not see these disruptions as being... Um, uh, 
anything that they needed to take part of, or there wasn't a critical enough reason for them to make a change uh, from the status quo. And so those pretty much kind of died out or went underground for a long time uh, until the recession of 2008. Okay, so let's talk about that recession and how it changed the trajectory uh, in terms of consolidation. Yeah, so... um, there were several different things that came to bear at that time. When the recession hit in 2008, um, you saw a lot of discretionary income that went away. And uh, you saw the top line of dental offices start to diminish, and you saw the bottom line start to diminish as well. So dentists are very conservative by nature, and when we run into economic downturns, we generally look immediately to the expense columns on our P&L. And we try to save ourselves to prosperity. So what we're not going to do is buy dental offices that are for sale. Uh, We're not likely to bring on associate doctors at that time. And uh, we're likely to try and cut costs, such as marketing and and other items, uh, look for um, less expensive um, uh, supplies in order to kind of hunker down and make our way through um, the, um, uh, the downturn. So what had happened at that point was that um, you had the DSOs that had started, as we discussed in the nineties, many of them, they'd only gained about 2% market share um, up until 2008. But now all of a sudden you saw a dramatic seismic shift uh, as a result of that recession and the doctors that were not buying practices and not expanding through associate recruitment And so you had practices that were for sale that no doctors were buying, and you had dental students coming out of school that needed jobs. And that was very much exacerbated by the fact that the student loan debt uh, had doubled over the seven years leading up to that time. And so these kids coming out of school had a lot of debt, uh, much more so than their predecessors. They needed a job, and um, the DSOs were there. And so the DSOs started hiring these kids coming out of school and started buying these practices that were for sale. And you saw a growth from 2% to 13% of the overall dental market, general dentistry, being consolidated during those years from 2008 to 2013. Okay. So then can you talk about how the growth pattern of DSOs in the dental industry and what is spurring that growth? So, because I know in 2015, there was about 12%, but now it, in 2023, we're at about 34%, you wrote. So, in 2008 through 2013, um, you had these platforms, these DSOs, which are basically platforms to be able to uh, handle many of the administrative services of the practices that they had purchased. And um, these platforms became very intriguing to um, private equity. Private equity started looking at this fragmented industry, dentistry. They started taking a look at the balance sheets of these practices and realized these practices have like a 35, 40% cash flow. Profit margins are enormous in there. If we can somehow figure out a way to grab a hold of some of that profitability, that could be a really, really good investment for us. So what's the best way to get to as many of those practices as possible? Well, the best way to do it is to invest in primarily majority interest in the DSOs that own the non-clinical assets 
of those practices, which is where all the monetary value is held. That's the furniture, fixtures, equipment, um, the names of the practices, the leases, uh, the, the accounts receivable, the profits. If we can go in and buy majority interest in the company that is a platform for managing those and owns those assets, we can now pay a pretty good amount of money for that in order to um, uh, be able to have a great little return on investment. So they started looking around, private equity uh, started looking around because there was a lot of cash that certainly started starting to um, come into the economy and what do we do with it? And so um, PE went out to institutional investors or family funds or whatever, created the PE fund and then went to these DSOs and said, hey, we would like to partner with you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put this on a uh, three to five year trajectory before we recapitalize, which means sell out to the next private equity group that then will take majority interest in the DSO. And um, so an example of that would be um, um, they would uh, pay X number of dollars in order for to get majority interest. And then the DSO uh, with the backing of private equity and private equity would usually arrange this for them, uh, would arrange mezzanine loans and say, hey, listen, if we can get this money from you, we're going to invest it in buying additional dental practices here and expand this footprint greatly. And we're going to pay, we're going to, they're going to sell it to us because we're going to offer them a higher multiple than, uh, uh, traditionally, uh, than, uh, uh, dental offices have traditionally sold for. So instead of the three and a half multiple, they started offering 5X and 6X and beyond multiples of EBITDA in order to buy those uh, practices, meaning buying the non-clinical assets out of those practices. And we can discuss the difference between uh, clinical and non-clinical assets later, but um, we're going to buy those and offer them more money than that doctor would think they would ever get for their practice but we're going to also put that doctor on an employment contract so that they're going to stay. We're not losing our provider. So that shifted the manner in which doctors retired, because in the past, doctors would generally bring an associate doctor in, uh, associate for a while, uh, could be six months, it could be 10 years. They would then sell that associate interest in that practice and then eventually sell the practice out. In many cases, they would bring an associate in and say, I want to be out in six months. I'll sell it to you. We'll do a transition for six months and gone. In this scenario, the doctor is now working for the practice in the DSO for a much smaller income, and they're doing it for a period of years, really hoping that the partial value of their practice that they rolled into stock is going to pay out at the next capitalization uh, recap event. Okay, because I was going to ask you um, where stock plays into that, because you do mention it into the paper as kind of one of those cons to private equity funding this growth. Yeah, so what happens, and the best way, and I I did this in the paper, I gave an example of a $2 million practice um, that has uh, $1 million of profitability. So say you have an orthodontic practice, it's two two million in revenue, 1 million in uh, expenses, and that doctor is taking home before taxes a million dollars a year. Uh, DSO would come to that doctor and say, hey, listen, if you're willing to work for $300,000 a year, um, we'll sign a contract with you for three or four years. You get the same results that you're getting now or better. 
Um, we're going to take that difference between that million that you used to make and the 300000 that you're going to make as an employee of the company, and um, that's a $700,000 difference. We're going to take a five multiple of that 700000 and say your practice is worth $3.5 million. We're going to give you $3 million in cash. We're going to give you a half million dollars in stock. Be sure and go out and say some really good things about what you've done so that other people will do likewise. And when we have this recap event in three to five years, your 500000 will grow to some unknown number. Mm-hmm. So um, what's interesting is that doctor has really given up $700,000 a year income for four years, which is $2.8 million in order to get $3 million up front. So they really have just gotten a cash advance on the money that they, on the profits they were going to take anyway. Uh, what's really interesting is about how the um, finances play out in that practice, though. Um, the private equity company is the, the money that they put into buying the majority interest in the DSO is very rarely the money that actually goes to that doctor, that $3 million to uh, pay them for their practice. That is that mezzanine loan. So the growth really started taking off when interest rates were low at 3% because that doctor gave up uh, $700,000 of income that now the DSO is getting in one form or another through managed service fees or profits or whatever um, for the $3 million. But they were only having to pay 3% and interest only on that mezzanine loan. So 3% on Three million is only ninety thousand a year. That doctor gave up seven hundred thousand of income for that three million dollar check, and the DSO is only having to debt service ninety thousand of it. So that gives them six hundred and ten thousand of profits in that practice to be able to use as managed service fees, distributions to uh, the uh, institutional investor, or profits for the DSO, and the doctors in total. All of the doctors combined in that DSO usually own a very small percentage of the DSO. Okay. It's the institutional or it's the private equity company that usually has majority interest in it. And then the founders of the DSO have a piece of it. So most of the time you will find that it's around 18 to 24% of the entire DSO that's actually owned by the doctors themselves. And there could be hundreds of doctors and a handful of people in the PE and, a, and one investor. Oh, okay, okay. So what is driving doctors to turn to DSOs today? Uh, you know, that's a question I ask myself a lot. And uh, I think, um, I can only think of two reasons why anybody would take a four-year cash advance, work the four years, mm-hmm. and just give up their entire practice the monetary assets of the practice and the value uh, for some unknown number that they're going to get on this little piece of stock that they have in the DSO. So outside of not understanding basic math uh, or um, uh, they owe somebody money that they have to get to them fast, uh, I can't think of a real legitimate reason. But if you ask me why I think they're doing it, is I think that that presentation that is made by the salespeople uh, within that DSO and the way that they present these huge numbers uh, make it look so good that I think the doctors get married to that number 
and they hope that that big payout occurs because what they would show, what I've seen shown is um, they will show you the three million you're going to get in cash. They don't show you the seven hundred thousand that you're going to lose each year over the next four years. They show you the three hundred that you're going to make. So now they're adding one point two million to the three, and then they're saying that five hundred thousand could be worth a four or five or six multiple. So now you're looking at this number and it looks like it's like $7 million for my practice, but you're only getting three and you're giving up 2.8 to get it. And I think they get so excited about that number. Mm -hmm. Now that ties into, um, they're also probably tired and fatigued. And they also probably haven't located an associate that's going to come in and, and buy them out. Mm -hmm. And so they finally... Or maybe they've had a couple of associates that haven't worked out and they think this is the best option I'm ever going to have. And so why not? But the biggest problem that I see with that long term is that they're not just selling their practice. They're also selling all the future profits out of their practice. And therefore, the next doctor that replaces them when they do retire is now has been commoditized. Uh, they're going to come in at entry level and they're going to work at that entry level or what the least amount that can be paid uh, to, for that doctor until they then that group sells it to the next group. And it really turns the dentist into the equivalent of what we've seen um, happen in pharmacy and medicine uh, where you don't have the corner drugstore, uh, where the proprietor owns it mm -hmm. and the business but rather you have the third shift worker at Walgreens right. or Rite Aid mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's, you know, exactly where this is heading uh, as this uh, snowball continues to roll. Did you find any trends in terms of age or point in career in terms of who is interested in DSOs at this point, that option? Yeah, so it's changed. Um, and... Um, and you, you saw this change really starting to occur just before, but really accelerated by COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, most of that growth from about 20% to 32% of the, of the consolidation of general dentistry and from about 2% to uh, 10 to 12% in um, ortho and pedo occurred between the end of 19 and the end of 21. Okay. So that was greatly accelerated by COVID as a lot of people just said, hey, I'm I'm yeah. tired of this. I don't want to ever go through this alone again. And so I, I, bring me the paperwork. I'm signing it. It was also exacerbated by um, this scare that uh, when uh, President Biden came in, that capital, gain tax, capital gains taxes were going to double. And this is your year. So every single year I've heard this is a year to do it. This is a year to do it. And so they're, you know, they're still around every single year saying this is a year. But um if you go back to where this really started gaining momentum, you saw um, more of the doctors were on the uh, end of their career spectrum. Okay. This was their exit plan. I'm not going to find a doctor that's going out of school that's going to be able to afford this. Uh, they owe so much in student debt. They're basically coming out of school with the equivalent of a mortgage. Uh, they're not going to be able to take another mortgage to do this. They're certainly not going to be able to pay what these folks will pay. I'm going to be working the next four years anyway. I might as well just do this and and uh, retire. So um, that's what happened with those folks. Now what you're seeing a lot of is um, 
the younger folks that are starting to do that. Mm. And um, they're doing it for a few different reasons. One is they do have the student loan debt, and this is an opportunity to get some cash up front to be able to pay that off and get that burden behind them. They're also promised these multiple recapitalizations or the opportunity for them that you're going to be able to cash out some of your stock roll it into the next one, roll it into the next one. Instead of taking the full $3 million, take $1 million of that plus the 500000 roll that in, and now you don't have 500000 that's going to be, um, uh, that's going to uh, yield you a 4X or 5X, but you're going to have 1.5. And so they're buying into that. And who knows how that's going to pay out, uh, play out. It's going to play out well for some and, and not well for most, I suspect. Um, but it is a really good way of keeping folks in what I called indentured servitude long term, because if they make the wrong play on that and it doesn't pan out, what are they going to do now? What's the next move? Are they going to go out and start all over again? They're not going to really have the funds to be able to purchase a practice. So they're going to be there either way, is my thought. And so I think you're going to have a lot of disillusioned people uh, that are going to come through this. How much you're going to hear about it, I don't know, because I think it's going to be very embarrassing to talk about it much. Yeah. Well, you touched a little bit there about what this means for younger doctors selling their practices, but I'm curious, what does it mean for younger doctors who are coming out of their residencies and looking to get started in their careers? What does the growth of DSOs do to them? So what's happening right now, is, and I, I have been to probably 18 to 20 uh, dental schools, um, uh, mostly the residencies in ortho and pedo over the course of the last uh, six months. And um, very few of them are going to be able to buy a practice. Um, very few of them, if any, are going to be able to start a practice uh, because of the amount of student loan debt they've got. And so... Um, um, they are definitely ripe for recruitment by the DSOs, and their thought and their, their minds at that stage of their career is, uh, well, I'll go work for DSO for a little while while I'm figuring it out. And um, I'm always really a little bit intrigued by that because I talk to these residents and I talk about how much effort and energy and thought and planning uh, and discipline it took for them to get from being one of many in their high school to being someone that got accepted into an ortho or pedo program. It takes a different type of person with a different type of discipline and a lot of planning. So I'm always very uh, congratulatory of them for re making that accomplishment, reaching that uh, goal. But I'm equally um, a little bit perplexed by how little thought has gone into the next move, which is the one that's going to greatly impact their life, probably more so than any that they've made to that point. And that is, what next? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? So I think they see that DSO as being kind of a mezzanine step when they graduate. Um, and they also, uh, I find that, that a lot of the uh, residents, they have a different mindset than maybe I did 30, 35 years ago. Uh, in what they're wanting out of life at this point. Um, they seem to have a very uh, distinct idea about where they want to live and what they want that to look like. Uh, a, um, 
a um, survey that I saw that was taken by Shannon Patterson of Benson Koppel about five years ago mm -hmm. had roughly about 80% of all the ortho residents that year wanting to live in the same six states. Yeah. So I think that if you're coming out of school and your mindset is, I want to live in Dallas, Texas, you have a number of opportunities to go to work for DSOs in Dallas, Texas. And so that's the next step. The big question is, how do you get out of that and where do you go from there? Because if I'm getting out of school with $750,000 of student loan debt and I'm taking a job for a DSO in Dallas, Texas as an orthodontist for $300,000 a year, um, where do I go from there? It's not like I'm making enough money to be able to save up to buy a practice. Uh, probably not going to be offered an opportunity to come in as an associate paying that much in a privately owned practice. And if I do take a little bit of a pay cut or go make a lateral move, what makes me think that doctor is going to sell that practice to me at a discount and not sell it to a DSO? And here I find myself working for a DSO again all of a sudden. Oh, okay. So I don't know that there are many ways out of that once you get into it because um, uh, of, of the financial chasm between the student loan debt and the higher multiple that is being offered for valuable practices. So what you end up finding is some practices that the DSOs aren't interested in. They do not have much of an EBITDA. Um, maybe the doctor's taking home 300000 a year, and so they don't want to buy his practice because there's no value in it. They're going to have to hire somebody for 300000 to come in and replace this doctor, and there's no profit. So when will you pay anything for something that's yielding no profit? The same question I could ask, why would the resident go out of school and buy a practice that's only cash flowing 300000 when they can go to work for a DSO for 300000 So yeah. you end up with these practices in the middle that nobody really wants. And so what do you do? And chances are they close down. Yeah. Or you have a very successful practice in a very rural area, three hours away from the nearest airport and an hour away from the nearest interstate. It might be cash flowing a million dollars a year, but it's completely worthless to the DSOs because they are not going to be able to get a doctor to replace them. So, you know, if, if that doctor is really young and they're willing to sign a long-term contract, then maybe they're interested. But if it's somebody looking to exit, um, they're probably not going to find a doctor to replace them. The DSO is probably not going to buy them for the very same reason. Okay. Well, I want to talk about what it means. You talked a little bit about this before, but what does it mean to be owned by a DSO? Who owns what and... Who owns the practice and what do they own, basically? Yeah. So you'll very seldom ever hear a DSO talking about owning a practice. In fact, they're very proud of the fact that they don't own the practice, okay? The doctor owns the practice and we partner with the doctor. This is a partnership. So I started digging into that and I thought, well, partnership sounds good. I've been a part of partnerships for many, many years, Um Great partnerships work out real well. I've been married to the same woman for 34 years, and that's a partnership, and I know exactly what it looks like. I was a part of an orthodontic group practice for a quarter of a century, and I know exactly what that partnership looks like. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be exciting to see what this partnership looks like. So I looked at it, and I said, okay, when you pay the money to the doctor, what what are you buying and what are you not buying that 
creates this partnership. They said, well, we're not buying the practice. I said, all right, well, just define for me what exists in the practice after you partner with them. Well, the patients and the patient records. I said, okay, well, tell me what part of it that you own either all or a majority of when you pay that doctor the money to become a partner of theirs. They said, well, we own anywhere from 51% to 100% of the non-clinical assets. I said, all right, so what are those? I said, well, that would be the furniture, fixtures, equipment, um, the accounts receivable, the names of the practices, the leases on the offices. I said, so, and the profits. So you own everything that's of monetary value and they own everything that's not of monetary value. So how are you partners? <clears throat> they said, well, they're still doing the dentistry. I said, okay. So the partnership is that they do the dentistry and take on all of the liability associated with doing that dentistry for entry-level pay, and you guys get all of the rest of the profits out of the practice through one form or another. Mm -hmm. And that is what they mean by partnership. So what does that mean? Say there was a case where a doctor got kicked out of the practice or somehow was removed, they wouldn't own anything and they could just install another doctor in there, correct? Well, that doctor who's the partner, if they once they leave, they're not getting anything anyway okay. except for whatever value they have in that stock uh, okay. that they did not take in cash up front. Mm -hmm. And we just described that, you know, th there are literally DSOs out there that have well over a thousand uh, doctors, okay, yeah. mm -hmm. that are partners yeah. by that definition that I just gave. Those thousand people are all splitting 20 to 25% of the money that comes into that DSO when they recapitalize. And that money, when I say that money, I mean after they pay off all of the debt of all of those doctors that they bought the practices from since the last recap. Okay. So you could you could get, let's say you have um, uh, you sell you ha you have a large DSO, and um, they sell majority interest. The, the private equity company sells their sixty percent, for example, to the next private equity company. And they do it for $100 million, okay? But let's say that since the last recap, there were $60 million that was borrowed in mezzanine loans that they've just been paying interest on, uh, interest on out of what used to be the profits of all of those practices. So that debt gets paid off. So now you've got $40 million left. Well, those doctors, if, if that... Uh, DSO is owned 20% by all of the doctors of that uh, what I say 40 million dollars that's left yeah only 8 million of it gets divided out among those doctors all the rest of it either goes to the private equity company that has majority interest or the um, uh, the administrative group and or the owners of the DSO itself meaning uh, the people that founded it and the people, you, you usually get a big 
carve out um, to the executive team. A lot of times that's 10% of the whole transaction. Yeah. Uh, that keeps them on to get to the next recap. So the doctors are getting pennies, um, uh, maybe nickels on the dollar uh, out of that after it's all said and done. Okay. So they don't care if that doctor leaves. That doctor's going to stay mm-hmm. uh, until that recap. And that's all that private, that's all that DSO cares about because it's not their problem after that. It's whoever bought them. Now they're uh, going to try to have them looped in for a period of time after the recap because if they've got the doctors in place, the longer they have them in place, the better off that is for what the value they're going to get at the recapitalization. And what's happening with the younger doctors now is um, the younger doctors who have a growing practice and who are willing to take less cash up front. And within those documents, it says that they can only cash out 20% of their uh, stock at each recap. They know that they've got those doctors for about 20 years. And uh, a lot of doctors are willing to sign onto that agreement because they know they're going to practice 20 years anyway, and they can get a higher multiple for that. So instead of a five, they could be looking at a nine, 10. If you listen to the podcast on group dentistry now, uh, that was uh, late last year uh, with Chip Finster from uh, Large Practice Sales, he talks about double digit um, uh, sort of um, uh, multiples in scenarios just like that. Okay. Okay. So what does this all mean for the patient and the community? So I don't think you have to look too far or do much guesswork. Um, This private equity, once they entered through the uh, medical service organizations in medicine, and once uh, Walgreens and Rite Aid and CVS started buying out or, um, uh, or placing the local independents in such dire financial straits that they had to shut down, Um, you get a real good sense of what it looks like. So even in the DSOs, you know, you're seeing 30, 35% turnover rates in a lot of them, if not most of them. Um, What does that do from continuity of care for a patient? So if I'm a doctor and I get out of school and I take a job for $300,000 a year or $150,000 if I'm a general dentist or whatever, um, my commitment is the length of that contract. I've got no investment made in that. I've got no ties to it. Um, I can take a look around and see where I want to live next, and Florida sounds good. If I can get, if I get a dental license there, or uh, I've got you know reciprocal uh, uh, opportunities for license in other states, I just throw a dart on a map and take a look at the DSOs and see who's hiring and what they're offering because they're all trying to incentivize people, uh, signing bonuses, uh, twenty five, fifty thousand, um, moving expenses. So you could do that every two years and take that signing bonus and take the job that's going to pay ten, fifteen thousand uh, more and see the world that way. Yeah. Um, what that ends up being is a lack of continuity of care for the patient long term. And if you don't have ownership in that practice, meaning control of the profits and the dollars and the P and L, you're not going to commit any resources to the community and community involvement. So you have a deterioration of commitment to community and continuity of care to the patient and uh, high turnover rates and um, all that goes with it. We've seen it in medicine. We've seen it in pharmacy. Um, You're going to see it in dentistry as well. As consolidation is going to continue to occur, um, you'll get people that will say, well, it's only going to be about 50% consolidation. Well, 
It may be 50% consolidation, but it's going to be near 100% of all of the practices that they want. You're right. You know, I grew up on a farm and we didn't pick 100% of the tomatoes out of the garden. We just took the 50% 50 that we wanted and um, the rest of them weren't good enough to eat. So that's kind of what you're going to see. It's a little bit misleading when they say that, I think. Okay, so what are the alternative practice models then to a DSO? What what exists at this point? Because I know PepperPoint is yeah. one of those. I, I looked around at this. You have to realize, Allison, that you know I had nineteen um, orthodontic offices. Me and my partners did, and um, uh, we were absolutely ripe for uh, uh, to sell. Um, we had uh, a back office um, platform that basically performed the same functions as. Um, uh, a DSO. And in fact, that's what PepperPoint was. It was simply a location where all of the administrative functions for Waker Maggard's 19 offices uh, were performed. It was part of the whole, it was all the same thing. And um, so we had PE groups that wanted to use that as a platform in order to, this was easy, come right in. The platform's already built. Uh, uh, the technology's in place. The systems are in place. We've got 19 offices here. Let's rock and roll. Let's go. And I explored that um, and came to the same conclusions that I've just covered with you today about what that uh, true value was. And um, it didn't make sense financially. It certainly didn't make sense through my core values of selling out the next generation of doctors, uh, especially given the fact that I have uh, one daughter that's a pediatric dentist and another that's graduating from dental school this May. Mm. I didn't want to leave the profession worse than I found it. And um, so I started looking around and you have to be really careful when, when you listen to what people say about, well, this is doctor owned. This is um, a partnership. Um, we're never, you know, we don't, um, um, we're going to always maintain majority ownership in it, uh, those types of things. This is what I've come to realize. No private equity company or family fund or, or any venture capitalist is ever going to invest large sums of money into purchasing a DSO without having control of when it's going to sell. You're never going to see a situation where it's like... Um, an institutional investor calls up the PE group and says, hey, we would like to exit this. When are we going to be able to get, you know, get our investment back? We've gotten nice returns, but we're ready to kind of shift into another direction. And the PE group says, let me get back to you. I need to go and ask the dentist when they're going to want to sell. That's never going to happen. Yeah. They have control either through majority ownership or they have control through uh, the board okay. to be able to sell that when they want to. So I looked at all of that. I, I didn't like the fact that it made no sense from a financial perspective, a core value perspective. And um, so we decided to do something different. And that's what PepperPoint really was, was, uh, uh, hey, it's the idea that nobody needs all of this cash up front, or if you don't, uh, then, but you want the protection and you want to increase your income going forward and you want an exit strategy, 
and uh, you want to be able to transition ownership from one generation to the next, and you would like passive income in retirement and the equivalent of a 10x multiple uh, when you add that together and leave the profession better than you found it rather than worse than you found it, then this could be something you would be interested in. So it was founded out of the idea that we wanted to protect our legacy here uh, in Kentucky. We wanted to protect what we had built. We wanted to be able to uh, create a transition for the next generation of doctors, but one that um, they could afford and would protect them and help them grow in this economic environment that we're in and this in this consolidation environment um, and create the best. And, and this is what a, this is what a model has to be in order to be the most su successful model, in my opinion, and to be the best model. Mm -hmm. It has to produce the absolute best financial outcome for the incoming doctor and the outgoing doctor. It has to have great alignment um, for all of the stakeholders. And the stakeholders are the communities, the patients, and the doctors. And it has to be the most sustainable. So if the question is asked, well, what's the most sustainable model? The most sustainable model is the one that can attract the next generation of doctors. No model is sustainable if you have doctors retiring or dying and no one to replace their work. That's it. So which is the most sustainable model, given that definition? It's going to be the one that is going to provide for those incoming doctors the best possible financial result and the most security and the best long-term plan for them in both of those um, realms. So... It's easy for us to win that from that perspective because this is about ownership. It is about absolute transfer of true ownership, clinical and non-clinical assets from one generation of doctors to the next as my daughter became a partner in the group on January 1st. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have all of the hands in the pot, such as private equity and um, the um, institutional investor, and all of that money stays in the company to be distributed to the partners of which 100% of those partners are the doctors. So Pepper Point does not own any of the practices, doesn't own any of the clinical or non-clinical assets at all. We simply unite the doctors together and then guide them forward in a group because they do not um, have the experience to be able to manage a group practice of 30 or 40 locations. So we have brought together four of those such groups. Uh, one was 50 locations, one was 42 locations, one was 20 locations, and one was 24 locations. And so what Pepper Point does is help strategically manage um, those four. So yeah. the actual... Um, manage services, but also the strategy and the tactics in order to grow. And we have been able to produce in those first two groups um, anywhere from um, uh, 20 to 35 percent growth since 2019, and we've been able to increase profitability between 27 and 40 percent for those groups uh, since 2019 and 2020. And when you think about the headwinds during those times, we've had COVID, uh, supply chain shortages, and the highest inflationary year in 40 years. So 
Uh, we beat the industry. I mean, the industry was probably down one to two percent uh, in those years, not 21. But if you take a look at 22 and 23, and during 22 and 23, we were having double-digit growth in both profitability and revenue, while uh, the rest of the industry was stagnant. And one of the reasons for that is there's no. Um, uh, we're not capital intensive because nobody's getting these big checks that we're having to borrow up front. They're getting increased income as time goes on. They're getting the transition um, uh, from one generation to the next, and they're getting the passive income in retirement. So it's a different model for a different time yeah. for a different type of people. These are not about quitters. These people that we help bring together, these are fighters wanting to fight for their backyard. They don't want to give up their income. They want a path forward and they need guidance and want guidance in getting from here to there. Well, before we wrap it up, I'm just curious, what's your message to orthodontists who are in private practice and looking at the road ahead? So one of the things that we've seen since interest rates have gone up and the early adopters have already jumped on the DSO bandwagon mm -hmm. is you're now seeing um, a more um, uh, tentative group a more thoughtful group of people that are taking a look at their options. And I think that's good. I think that's really good. Uh, I believe that uh, anyone that is in practice right now should absolutely start contemplating their exit. Okay. Whether it's three years from now or 30 years from now, they need to start thinking about what is that exit strategy? Because I can tell you one that's not very good now, nor will it be. And that is the one that's worked for all of the years in the past. When the time comes, I hope I find somebody that's going to come in that wants to buy the practice and is willing to pay what it's worth. That is not going to work in the future. So there's going to need to be some strategic planning right now about what that exit strategy is going to look like. So you got to figure out who are you going to team up with. Are you going to get together with some of the other folks in the area and team up in order to be able to combat uh, the inflationary effects that are going to absolutely hit the independent doctor more than anyone else is you're going to see the big supply companies and the vendors. They're not going to come out to the local doctor five years from now. They're going to go to the procurement um, uh, specialist at the 100, 200, 300, 400 unit DSO. Uh, they're not going to go to a, they're going to move from a sales force to a service force, servicing large accounts, not selling to small practices. So that's going to be death by a thousand paper cuts. Now you can do it and you can go on forever. Um, practices that have been going for 20 years, you're not planning on retiring for 10 more. You're probably going to be fine because you've built a reputation, but you're going to be hit by this inflation and you're going to be hit by the shift uh, from um, sales to service. Um, but still, you haven't figured out your exit strategy. What's it going to be? And so that was really what we were thinking. We brought that first group together. We want to know what that exit looks like. We want to know that it's the best financial outcome. We want to know that we can retire when we want to retire. So I think those are the questions that people need to be asking themselves. Which model is going to be best? Staying it alone teaming up with a traditional private equity-backed DSO or something more innovative mm -hmm. All right. and do the homework. You know, what I ask people all the time is uh, they'll call and inquire and I'll give them, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minute um, overview of it. And then um, they might say, oh, okay, well, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. 
And that may be enough for some, but for many, I wonder, are they doing that same thing? Are you, you put, you'll put more time into deciding where you're going to go for dinner than you're willing to put in to how you're going to dispose of the biggest asset that you have created in your entire lifetime. So I would say, go in and engage, engage with DSOs, engage with whomever you want to, us, anyone, go through the process of truly understanding what it is so that you will have an idea of what's on the menu out there so that you can determine which one is going to get you where you want to go and allow you to exit in the way that you want to exit at the time that you want to exit. Great. Well, Dr. White, thank you so much for taking the time to expand on your paper and for fleshing out this topic and giving some really helpful advice for orthodontists as they look to the future. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. It's always great talking to you. And uh, you can probably tell I'm pretty passionate about this. Uh, I care greatly about uh, what happens to uh, dentistry. It has meant so much to me and my family. And uh, I want it to uh, continue in its very best form possible uh, with a great alignment for all those stakeholders. So thank you so much great. and you have a great day. Thanks. You too. As always, thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Orthodontic Products Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes. And be sure to check out orthodontoproductsonline.com to keep up with the latest industry news. Until next time, take care.